The thing we want to think about uh, tonight is how God has revealed His Word is just as important to what He said. So we have to know how He revealed. Make sure I don't do something silly and have my phone go off. Uh, how we reveal, how God revealed it is as important as what he actually says. Uh, think about it this way. You go to an art gallery. Now, everybody probably knows, you, you don't need to see more. You know, so, <laughs> yeah, maybe something's happening here. Uh, if you go to an art gallery, I mean, how many artists have painted horses? Like tons and tons and tons of artists have painted horses. And, uh, and, and yet, every picture of a horse is going to look different. Nobody just goes up to it and go, well, just another horse. No, there's, there's some, there, there's design, there's artistic design to it. There's a way it's been uh, put in the picture. There's background. There's all kinds of things. The same thing with the Bible. You do not want to read the Bible just trying to find out what it says. You will miss 50% of God's message if you do it that way. He's always artistically doing it and sending his message in a very, very unique way. So, think about this question. Why is it so important then to see the how he delivered it or how he revealed it and not just the what? What is that going to help us understand about God? Anybody think of something? You're not just seeing the what. You're seeing the artistic way he put it together. What are you going to see in God? Yeah. You're going to see the beauty of what he does. It's just like if I drew a horse and an expert artist drew a horse, <laughs> you're going to say, in fact, I probably can't even draw it where you could say it was a horse. You know, you probably wouldn't even know it was a horse. But an expert is going, you're going to go, wow, look at how they put this together and this together. Look at that. Look at the detail. Look at the 3D effect. You can, you can say all kinds of things about it. That's what we're doing. That's what God is doing. He puts things together in different ways. It's not an encyclopedia. This is not just uh, some book where he says, you know, here's a list. This is not a catechism. This is not, here's all the answers. This is him revealing his mind. And he's done so in a really, really unique way. That brings us then to understand and know him uh, more deeply and to be drawn to him. And that's, that's the, the great idea about that. Isn't that wonderful? We have a PowerPoint. We're not going to all die tonight then. Very good. <laughs> okay, so let's go from there. And we're going to illustrate this. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And uh, <clears throat> I'll just set this up here. So Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, that's the, that's the part of Matthew everybody always, uh, I mean, when you start to read Matthew, you probably spend 30 minutes or so just really examining this part of the text, right? Everybody, no? no you, you, that's right, you skip right over it and go to verse 18. Yeah, that's, that's what we do with that, isn't it? So, so let's, let's, uh, let's see something. Uh, if you read Matthew 1 uh, and 1 through 17, you see this, uh, this genealogy. And what would we say the genealogy is, is about? 
What's the genealogy of Matthew 1 about? What's, what's Matthew proving? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is David's son. He fits the genealogy. He then is the promised one. He is the one who would fit that uh, scenario and bring him then to possibly be than the Messiah. That's, that's, that's what we immediately say. Yeah, that's it. I'm not a Jew. I don't need to go through all those details. Uh, that, that's fine. However, uh, when you read this, you notice some other things. There's symmetry in the genealogy. Matthew goes 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations. So he does three 14 generation sections to bring us up to Christ. And in those three 14 generation sections, what he's showing us is the three great periods of Israel's history. Also in showing that, he reminds us of how how Israel goes downhill as far as their goodness and righteousness and their sinfulness just gets worse and worse and worse until God sends them in captivity. And you see evidence of that by the people that are mentioned uh, in, in, that, uh, uh, in, that, in that genealogy. So this, this underlying reminder of Israel's sin and, of course, the mercy of the Lord. All right, so there's, there's those pictures. He doesn't just do genealogy. He has a design to it. By the way, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. He has to, he has to name David twice to make it an equal 14. So that tells you something right there. He's, he's trying to get you to remember something. He's, he, David is actually mentioned twice in order to get that, that three 14s. Uh, Plus, there's an interesting, as most of you probably know, there's, there are Gentiles in the genealogy and there are women in the genealogy. Somebody named the first woman you see in the genealogy? Tamar, that's right. Tamar is the first woman in the genealogy. Which, what's Tamar's nationality? What nation is she of? You know, you can't go to heaven if you don't know this. It's a Canaanite. That's right. And the Canaanites were cursed, right? <laughs> when Ham did the thing that he did with Noah, Noah pronounced a curse and said, Cursed be Canaan, the son of Ham. Because the Canaanites would do like what Ham did, and he puts a curse on them. And what do you know? A Canaanite is in Jesus' genealogy. Hmm. What's the second woman you see in the genealogy? Pardon? Rahab. Okay, and Rahab, she's, uh, she's a what? <laughs> she's a prostitute. And also a Canaanite. That's exactly right. She's a Canaanite, she's a prostitute. And she was the one who saved the spies that came into Jericho. Exactly. And Rahab is in the genealogy. Amazingly enough, Rahab, of course, turns to the Lord. She's saved from the conquering of Jericho. She becomes the wife of one of the Israelites. And she's like the great-great-grandmother or so great-great-grandmother of, uh, or maybe a few more greats, I don't know, uh, <laughs> of David. So that's, that's pretty impressive. There, 
Now, if you, by the way, if you were uh, Jesus and you wanted to put his, your genealogy out there, uh, you putting these people in the genealogy? I'd, be, I'd probably skip a generation there or so and not throw uh, <laughs> these women in the genealogy, all right? Who's the third woman in the genealogy? Ruth. And what's her nationality? She's a Moabite. Moabite weren't allowed into the congregation of the Lord to the 10th generation because they didn't receive Israel when, they, when Israel came and was going to go in the promised land. So she's a Moabite. And she becomes the great-great-grandmother of, uh, of King David. Uh, and then the fourth woman in the genealogy is, doesn't even name her. Uh, wife of Uriah. Yeah, Bathsheba. Oh yeah, we're sticking that in our genealogy if you're Jesus, right? So you not only have four women in genealogy, which Israelite men would not do. They're not putting women in their genealogy. Uh, I mentioned this to you before, but the favorite saying of a lot of rabbis was, I, and I say favorite prayer, I thank God I'm not a Gentile, a Samaritan, or a woman. I mean, that's how they felt about it. And these women aren't even good women. Where, where's Leah in the genealogy? Where's Rebecca? Where's Sarah? Where are all they? They're not in the genealogy. And yet Jesus picks these four women in the genealogy, three of the four are Gentiles, the fourth Bathsheba is married to Uriah the Hittite, <laughs> another, another Canaanite tribe, and, and he puts all that. What's the message? What, what message is screaming out from those women in that genealogy? Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah for everybody. And even the worst people, what, who people would think were the worst of the worst, Jesus has come to save everybody. So right off the bat, it's a strong message. And a strong message to a Jewish audience who, of course, especially of the Pharisees, very, very like, whoa, 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 whoa. These people aren't going to be saved. These people aren't going to be the kingdom. These are the sinners and the tax collectors, and these are in that same category, and they're not going to be saved. Hmm. <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of the uh, one of the most shocking things you'll read in the Old Testament is the Manasseh was saved. What? God destroyed all of Judah because of Manasseh's how much blood innocent blood Manasseh shed, and yet when you read Chronicles, suddenly you realize the man repented at the end, and uh, the graciousness of God uh, was shown to him. That's uh, that. that that doesn't give you hope, what does? <laughs> you, know, uh, you can do it. So a lot of, a lot of cool things about this. <clears throat> what would you say the key word that's used throughout this text? What key word or phrase is used over and over again? Begot, yeah. If you're reading King James, New King James, begot, or uh, the idea of father of, uh, and yet conspicuously absent is no begat, uh, or father of between Joseph and Jesus. So suddenly when he gets to Joseph, there's no, and Joseph begat Jesus. Joseph, now he's immediately signaling to us 
that it is the offspring of the woman who is going to crush Satan's head, going all the way back to the first prophecy of the Bible in Genesis 3.15. So he, he's immediately setting that up. All of that is to say, look at how he revealed it, not just what he said. Yeah, another subject, not going to talk about it. <laughs> You can ask me that later. <laughs> yeah, another subject. Okay, so uh, just looking at the design. Always look in the Bible and try to find the design. So here's some of the things we want to do. Uh, as I just mentioned, uh, what God, how God has revealed his truths is as important as what he said. 1 Corinthians 2.13, Paul says, we're revealing these things in words, not taught by human wisdom. We're not, the, we're not the ones that came up with the words. These are words taught by the Holy Spirit. So this is designed, the book you're reading is designed and put together by God. And that is a critical part of this. Uh, for example, consider the structure of Mark. Some of you know this. <clears throat> Mark starts right out with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Immediately Mark tells us, He's going to tell us about Jesus as the Son of God and the beginning of the good news of Jesus as the Son of God as it was revealed by Isaiah. So Mark is going to mirror Isaiah and put Jesus in the story of Isaiah. And he's, Isaiah is the only prophet he mentions in the whole book. And, uh, and, and he constantly shows scenes that fulfill what Isaiah had said. So if you know Isaiah, you're going to get a whole lot more out of the book of Mark than if you don't know Isaiah. If you don't know Isaiah, there's going to be a ton of things going to go right over your head. So it, again, the importance of knowing all Scripture. But he's giving a structure right away. The unique part of this is that when you see it from Isaiah's standpoint, what you're seeing is God had left Israel, they had been destroyed, and now God is returning. Prepare the way for the Lord. He's coming back to save Israel and to be their king and to conquer the enemy. And that's the message then that you see uh, all the way through. 22 miracles just in the first eight chapters indicating God's power. Uh, the king has come and he is proving himself the conqueror and uh, bringing peace to, to his kingdom. Chapter 8, 27 on, everything is about Isaiah's picture of the arm of the Lord coming to deliver his people. And that, of course, through the crucifixion. So everything's mirroring that and showing that picture. So it alerts us to that. The structure is there. And all the gospel accounts have different structures and different purposes uh, for us then to discover. All right, we're going to look at, you know, like you see on your sheet, we're going to look at uh, a few examples of structure that you should see. It's not that you're going to memorize, oh, that's radiation or whatever, but you're going to be able to see these structures and should notice them uh, when you, you read them. So radiation is kind of like a sunburst. Uh, you have a central thought, and everything that's said about that burst out from that central uh, spot. For example, in Psalm 148, you see the phrase, praise the Lord or praise Him 12 times in 14 chapters. Begins with praise the Lord, ends with praise the Lord. And then it's praise the Lord. We have a song like it. 
Praise, praise him in the heavens, praise him on the heights, uh, praise him all you rulers, etc. And there's all these different ways that burst out from the idea of giving praise to the Lord. So you're just noticing these kinds of character structures that are given. And Psalm 119, another one. Uh, what is mentioned in Psalm 119, 174 times out of 176 verses? Yeah, the Word of God. In all kinds of different ways, he mentions the Word of God. And every verse, except for two, is about God's Word and all the different ways that God's Word is valuable and instructive to us. So you're seeing, again, just like a, a sunburst of different ways that God's Word is shown. So there, there's that picture. Acrostic Psalms. Can you name the biggest acrostic psalm in the book of Psalms? Psalm 119, exactly. <laughs> so if you'll notice in Psalm 119, there's 176 verses, and they're put together in, in eight verse sections. And each eight verse section begins with the corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first eight verses, you'll even see it if you're looking at Psalm 119, it'll start with Aleph. And if you were reading in the Hebrew, every single verse begins with Aleph doesn't translate out, <laughs> can't really do it that way, and it goes to Beth. Each 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and each eight verse section starts with the corresponding letter of the alphabet. And it's like, kind of like saying, this is the word of God from A to Z. This is everything that could be said about it. And you, you see then that, that emphasis there. Um, in the book of Proverbs, what... Uh, what, uh, what book, what, what, what is said in Proverbs 31, 10 through 31? There's an acrostic. Uh, each verse is its corresponding letter. What, when that, what's that one, ladies? Yeah, worthy woman. Here's the virtuous woman or worthy woman. Lamentations, which most people don't know much about lamentations, but it's one of the most beautiful acrostics of all. It is like, it's done like a symphony. And each, there's five poems in the book and each of the first four all ha are all done in 22 verses, acrostics, acrostics, acrostics. And, uh, and it's really beautiful, and it hits a, hits a peak in the middle of chapter 3, and then it's like the, if you were listening to an orchestra, it's like the air comes out of the prophet, and, and he sees their doom, and it comes down, and then chapter 5, the fifth poem, is 22 verses, no acrostic. Israel has just fallen apart. It's you connect the message to the acrostic and the uh, rise and fall of the symphony. Uh, it's just one of the most beautiful things you ever read. Yeah, how do you discover it? You have to be able to read Hebrew. <laughs> so don't you know any Hebrew? You know, maybe a guy who makes sausage in the corner or something like that. Uh, yeah, that's, that you, have to, you have to know Hebrew. So the only way I knew it is because I read it. Read somebody who's a Hebrew expert, you know, most commentaries will mention that. They will just tell you, yeah, this is an acrostic, and so there's that. But it gives you an idea of things. There's a lot of acrostics that are given that way uh, in the Scriptures. Repetition. This is one of the easiest ones to spot. Uh, repetition of words and phrases gives you a clue to 
the message. Okay? Always gives you the clue to the message and the main point of the, uh, of the book. For example, we've already mentioned there's 22 miracles in the first eight chapters of Mark. There are five miracles just in chapter one. One of the things that burst on the scene when you're reading Mark is, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here is God coming into this, and then the thing that Jesus says is, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, pow, he just starts powering down on everything. If he says to a demon, come out, it comes out. If he says to the apostles, follow me, there's no story behind it. They just drop their fish, fishing business and follow him. Other accounts would say, well, it took a number of months. And Mark goes, when he says it, they go. Every single thing that happens, Jesus says it and it happens. And that's the way those first eight chapters go, just over and over again. The power of the king conquering and bringing his, his kingdom to himself. And so there's that, that, that strong message through the repetition. What's the term for urgency? Used 39 times in the book of Mark. Immediately. Exactly. And you see, so you see, here's the king. He comes and he does this and immediately he goes over here and does this and immediately he goes over here and does this and everything is pow, everything is just moving. He is challenging the Roman Caesar. Augustus Caesar on the coins had had Caesar Augustus, son of God. You want to see son of God, watch this. Caesar Augustus brought peace to the empire. That's why he was called son of God. How did he bring peace? By murdering everybody who didn't follow. How does Jesus being pre, be, become son of God and king? By allowing to be murdered. And raising from the dead and conquering the greatest enemy ever, Satan. That's why you see the demons. Demon possession and demon casting out is done more in Mark than any place else. He's conquering Satan over and over again. So just using that term is very, very important throughout this. Keyword in Leviticus used 95 times. Holy, holy, 95 times. Everything is about holiness in Leviticus. We have to be holy if we're going to go before God. We have to, be, we have to use holy things if we're going to worship God. In the same vein, unclean is used 128 times. Makes sense, doesn't it? We are unclean, and God has to make us holy. I am the Lord, used 49 times, especially chapter 19, 20. He'll say, I want you to do this. I am the Lord. Like your dad saying, you do this. I'm your father. You do this. And so it's that authority that God puts out. But you notice those things, and it's, it's really fun to, when you start noticing it, to stop and go, wait a minute. You know, let me go back and mark these places where that's used. And it really stands out in your study and helps you to understand the message even more. How many narrative session, se sections are there in Leviticus? We want to play the Jeopardy tune. Just try. Almost, but... There's two. Only two narrative sections. And they summarize the message of the book. Okay, Allison, she, she's got, she's, she's going, you know, there's another one, and she's going to try to get me here. <laughs> so the, there's the one we're all acquainted with, chapter 10. Remember when Nadab and Abihu, 
uh, do their thing and offer strange fire. But there's another one in chapter 24 when one of the men of Israel curses the Lord and God tells him that they, they have to stone him to death. Uh, so you have two pictures. If you're going to approach God, you must be holy and live holy. And if you're going to approach God, you must come to God with that which he designates as holy. You can't just offer anything. It has to be what God designates as holy. That same principle is true today. We can't just do whatever we want in worship. You have to find a passage in the Bible that says this is what God wants you to do. Just like you take the Lord's Supper. It isn't hamburgers and Pepsi-Cola because that would be unclean. You can put that on your table anytime you want. On the Lord's table, he designated unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. Anything else, you're going to go take a look at Nadab and Abihu and expect that end on the day of judgment. You don't do things your way. And it's just the most powerful thing. And Leviticus, that idea of you be holy for I am holy is quoted in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, warning us to do just exactly what he said in Leviticus. So it, it's, uh, it's really key. All right, anyway, so there's ideas of repetition. Key phrase in the, in the book of Genesis used 10 times. I thought I heard somebody say it. A what? Not, not ten times. <laughs> yeah, these are the generations of, depending on your translation, these are origins of. These are the generations of. Starts with two, four. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth. These are the generations of Adam. These are generations of sun. Sun goes right on generations of Noah, etc. And as you say, where's that going? Where's that going? The last one is these are generations of Jacob. And you go, where is he going? And then you turn to Matthew chapter 1 and it says, this is the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Ah, that's where he's going. He's pointing immediately toward Jesus. These are the generations of. So it's, this is the way that book is outlined and set up. Which book of the Bible uses the phrase kingdom of heaven? No other Bible, no other book uses kingdom of heaven. What? Matthew. Matthew. Okay. Matthew. Kingdom of heaven. 37 times. 37 times. Kingdom of heaven. That's what Matthew's about. If you're reading the other gospel accounts, it'll say kingdom of God in Mark and Luke. Why does he want to say kingdom of heaven in Matthew? Is that so important to be written to Jews? Kingdom of heaven. Okay. All right. Well, that's true, and he does a lot of that. What? Yeah, exactly. The Jews are looking for an earthly style kingdom, and he designates it as a kingship and a kingdom that is being reigned from heaven, and its character and nature is from heaven. Almost all of Jesus' parables in the book of Matthew are trying to give his people a picture of the kingdom that is not earthly. And it's an entirely different kind of kingdom. So that's, uh, that's really critical. Uh, another uh, type of structure you want to look for is progression. In other words, every Bible book has some kind of progression. It's progressing from point A to point Z, whatever. You know, you're progressing in the story and seeing how it progresses, how the author 
and the Holy Spirit put that together and progresses to a particular end goal. So like Acts, for example, very simply has a geographical progression and he announces it in chapter 1. What's the geographical progression? Gospel is preached at first where? Yeah, first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then Yeah, to the end of the earth. Exactly. So he lays it out right in the beginning. This is where we're going with Acts. The spread of the gospel, first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then to the end of the earth. And that's exactly the pattern that he then follows. But there's also other patterns. Acts also has an apostolic uh, progression. Okay? What is the progression of apostles? What apostles are the key apostles in the letter? Peter, okay? That's right. Peter is the first. Paul is the second. You see the book divided. Peter, the key apostle in the first 12 chapters. Paul, a key apostle in 13 through 28. And you say, why is that important? Here's why it's important. What Paul does in 13 through 28 mirrors what Peter did in 1 through 12. And why is that important? What's Luke trying to do? Peter is an apostle to whom? The Jews. Paul's an apostle to Gentiles. Everything you'll see Peter doing from extraordinary miracles or whatever it is, Paul will turn around and do the same thing to the Gentiles. Luke is really, really highlighting the importance of seeing Jew and Gentile are equal. And everything then that the apostle to the Gentiles does is the same thing he is mirroring what the apostle to the Jews did. It's a very important thing to see uh, in the book of Acts. Message of Acts. If you read the beginning of it and the end of it, you would see it really clearly. It's the restoration of the kingdom. You see it in chapter 1-4. You see it repeated in chapter 28-31. Everything is about the growth of the kingdom, restoring the kingdom. How many times do people say, well, uh, you know, Acts is about the church. Don't say that. (laughs) Acts is not about the church. Acts is about the rule of God through Jesus from heaven and what Jesus is doing in his kingdom. Church is the outcome of the preaching of the rule of Christ. People who obey Christ become a collective of Christians called church. But that's not descriptive. That's not it. Kingdom is what this is about. All the way through the Old Testament, everything is prophesying kingdom. And remember, and we won't go into this, kingdom and church are not the same thing. You cannot make them the same in all texts. Sometimes they are overlap and parallel, but they're not the same thing. Church is just people. Kingdom is the rule of God. That's an entirely different concept, and it's important to get that concept down. So you see that then in the, in the book of Acts over and over again. Uh, take a look at how about the, uh, the progression of the book of Exodus. Exodus begins, first 18 chapters, with... This is a really hard one. Exodus begins with the Exodus. Yeah. <laughs> deliverance. It begins with deliverance. And then the last part of Exodus is about. What you say? Worship and the tabernacle and worship and all that. Do you see how that relates? When God delivers you, 
the natural response is worship and serve him. And the tabernacle is presented so that he's, God is saying, I delivered you so that I could dwell in your midst. Therefore, you must live this way if you want me to dwell in your midst. So there's that beautiful parallel that goes uh, between them. The message then, God bringing us back into his presence after our sin. Exodus is, is our story of salvation. Exodus is not really primarily the story of Israel's deliverance. It's a story of our salvation. Everything in it parallels your salvation personally. All right? How about this one? If you look at this chart, what book is that describing? Judges. Very good. There's the book of Judges. You notice this downward progression. That's progression. It's progressing to the point where it's a disaster area, you know? Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Kind of reminds me of where I live now. You know, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And it's very, very destructive. So Judges is a picture of that. Another structure is contrast. So one of the things God does in order to help us understand a principle, he'll say, this is what I'm telling you, but let me show you the other side of the coin so that you can look at it and parallel the two. 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, Paul does a number of verses like this, if the dead are not raised, then Jesus is not raised. Then your uh, faith is in vain. Then, you know, he does all of these if-then kinds of statements. Proverbs 12, verse, chapter 12 through 15, has repeated contrasting proverbs. Uh, this, but this. <laughs> uh, the righteous do this, but the wicked do this. And so he will show those contrasts. Romans 7 and 8, one of the greatest pictures of contrast where you really learn something. At the end of Romans 7, Paul's talking about what it's like to live under law. That would be like law of Moses and try to be justified by law. And remember how Paul talks about it? Um, he says, sin's dwelling in me. What I would like to do, I don't do. Woe to me, he says, oh, this wretched body, who will deliver me from this wretched body of death? It's full of sin and death. And then he switches to chapter 8, and he says, but now in the Spirit there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Now you're no longer in the flesh. Now you're in the Spirit, if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Well, in chapter 7 he said the sin dwells in you. So what's it mean for sin to dwell in you? It's totally controlling you. You can't escape it. So what's it mean for the Spirit to dwell in you? Now you're following what the Spirit wrote. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit crawling inside your body. See, when you look at the contrast, you realize right away, he wasn't using dwell that way. He was using control. Now the Spirit's in control of my life. And now I'm free from sin when I follow the Spirit. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit leaving heaven, coming down, crawling in your flesh and blood body, and somehow that does what? There's nothing like that, and Paul uses that. When people notice context and contrast, then they see the difference and what meanings mean. That helps you describe what a very difficult text would. And I, I always look at that, and I'm amazed because Danny and I remember that back in, I don't know if you're this old, Danny, back in the 70s they had debates ad nauseum about what it meant for the Spirit to dwell in you. All you had to do is read Romans 7 and 8 and uh, quit stopping at the end of chapter 7, act like there's a new subject, <laughs> and see the contrast. And you would, oh, it's very simple then. 
It wasn't, wasn't rocket science at all. <clears throat> all right. Then there's another one, alternation, where uh, uh, the Holy Spirit lays two stories side by side and urges you to compare and contrast the stories. For example, the infancy narrative of Jesus in Luke ch chapter 1. You have a contrast that's placed, two stories, story of Elizabeth and Zechariah and the birth of John the Baptist and the story of Mary and the prophecy to her and the birth of Jesus. And that's laid side by side. We're invited to look at the comparisons and the contrast between the two. And it's just a beautiful story when you see that, especially when, you, when Luke has Mary and Elizabeth meet and uh, the babe leaps in Elizabeth's womb and the joy that they have, and you have this old woman and this young woman who are rejoicing because their two children are going to turn the world upside down. And uh, it's a really, really cool scene uh, in that. Uh, anybody get a little weary sometimes with First and Second Kings? Do you get a little confused? You're like, okay, there, King Jehu was doing this, and in the meantime, King, you know, <laughs> and they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and you're like, why are you doing that? wants you to compare and con contrast the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah and how the two became more and more similar as time goes on, especially uh, following uh, uh, some of the kings that uh, uh, had his name and just lost it. Uh, yeah, did, 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 did not. yeah, no, there's all these J ones. And that's why, why I don't <laughs> Fooey, never mind. <laughs> um, it's not even a J, and I can't, I can't even call, call it to my mind right now. But anyway, pivot, pivot. Books have a pivotal point, a key point where everything pivots to the other side. And you always want to notice that because now the whole book has contrast between one side and another. Examples of this. Pivotal point in the book of Mark, chapter 8, 27 to 31. Up to that time, Jesus is victorious, conquering everybody and everything. He gets to that point and he says, now I'm going to the cross and they're going to kill me and I'm going to raise the dead the, the dead third day. And Peter goes, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't do that. Everything's pointing to the cross of that pivotal point. But really, it's a pivotal point to where now he's going to say, now I'm going to do the ultimate conquering. I've been conquering all along. Now I'm going to get the ultimate victory by raising from the dead. And so you see that pivotal point there. What's the pivotal point in David's life? King David. Some, yeah. What did somebody say? Bathsheba. Exactly. Pivotal point in his life is 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Everything is going great for David up to chapter 11. Sins with Bathsheba, and not one good thing happens in his life after that. <laughs> so, uh, message? <laughs> Stay away from that sin. <laughs> if you want to destroy your life, David illustrates it right there. Phew, yes. Horrifying, exactly. Pivotal point in Judges. They did not drive out the Canaanites, and there arose up another generation that didn't know the Lord. And everything from that time on just goes downhill. Drive out the enemies, 
turn and teach your children the Lord. Pivotal point in Genesis, easy, right? Sin in the garden, pivotal point also, chapter 11, 27. Abraham reverses God through Abraham, reverses the blessings, reverses the curses by now giving three blessings. Three curses in the garden from sin, three blessings now that are going to come because of the offspring of Abraham. And so there you see that. Uh, final little test here. What book of the Bible is that describing? Is that little chart describing? Used to say back in the old days, $64,000 question. Nope. Kings. Did you say kings? Kings. Not second kings. Kings. Here's the little clue. First and second kings in the Hebrew is actually one Bible. One book. It's not two books. First and second Samuel is one book. First and second Chronicles is one book. It's one book. So when you stop at the end of 1 Kings, you've only read half the book. And here's the picture then of First and Second Kings. You have the temple built, kingdom is united, 1 Kings 12, Solomon and all his wives sins, turns to idolatry, and everything goes down. There's your pivotal point right there. Israel eventually is taken to Assyrian captivity. Judah is eventually taken into Babylonian captivity. Started with temple built. Now temple destroyed. Started with kingdom united, kingdom divided, and no more nation. So you can see there's the pattern of the two books. But we don't see that unless we scope back, get to the 30,000 foot level, and look at it in that bigger level. And now you're seeing the bigger message. Again, how he revealed is just as important as what he actually said. Okay? Very good. All right, that's real quick, but I'm giving you a taste of trying to see things more in a bigger picture way, see structure so you can see the message better. The message is as important as the details, more important, because you'll get the details wrong if you don't see the message. Everything fits into the message. Very good, guys. Good job.